the Green Man Podcast. You're listening to the Green Man Podcast. Is that what it's called? Nailed it. Hi, I'm Esther Sears. I've managed to find a tiny little stool in Einstein's garden and I've been uh, joined by a very special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, my name's Mike Jackson um, and I was Secretary of Lesbians and Gay Sport at the Miners uh, and that was all depicted in the movie Pride, introduced by Pathé in 2014. Yes. So that's how people would probably know you best. That's the only way. <laughs> Before that movie, I was a nobody, just like 99.9% of other people in the out world. Of, out of interest, what did you do? Before you set up or you co-founded Lesbians and Gays Supports the Minors, what did you do before then? All my life, I've worked in horticulture. Oh, okay. So, uh, horticulture is like posh for gardening. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love gardening. Dear. I might have some gardening <laughs> questions for you. Well, actually, we're in Einstein's garden. <laughs> we aren't are. We, yeah. we could talk a bit about gardening first. All right then. To ease ourselves <laughs> in. <laughs> because basically, over the summer, I I do a lot of gigs. I travel a lot for festivals. So I basically abandon my garden, and my garden always seems to blossom. <laughs> when I'm not there. <laughs> so I wanted to grow dahlias this year. Have you grown dahlias before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was really worried about it, but they've been fine on their own and I haven't done anything to them. And they really? look gorgeous, yeah. yeah and I good. thought they'd be quite high maintenance. Right, well, uh, the slugs and snails are a problem with dahlias at the beginning of the season. Sure, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. But they seem to have, yeah, yeah. yeah. survived. Oh, well. <laughs> That's a garden <laughs> question. Uh, and by the way, this uh, this estate, there's some mighty fine trees. Oh, it's beautiful. Uh, I was looking at a mountain stage uh, yesterday, and if you look from the kind of slope, mm. looking down at the mountain stage, to the left of it, there is one enormous tree and it's really distinctive and it's one of my favourite trees. It's called a silver-leafed lime. Oh, that it, sounds beautiful. And it is absolutely beautiful. And it's got this natural way of ha- growing that's very tall and kind of rectangular. So it makes this really solid statement. It, oh, you know, wow. it's a tree that says, hello, everybody, I'm here. <laughs> and it's like, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> You're That's gorgeous. kind of my vibe when I go on stage. So <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot in common. Does it shimmer? Yeah, I, I imagine it, it does. shimmers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. They, they silver leaf because the back of the leaves, it's got tiny downy hairs. Oh wow! And so they catch the light, and so it does. It shimmers. Yeah. yeah it's oh, quite, I'll have a look quite at that. a camp tree. Oh, lovely! Yeah. Oh, I love that. So tell me a little bit then about your role here at Greenman. What are you doing here? Well, I would never expect to. I've been invited to be a speaker. At the Green Man Festival, but that's the effect that having a movie made about your life has. Um, the irony about all that was just before the movie was released, we, we worked with this, uh, the movie company for three and a half years before it was released to the public in September 2014. And I knew that once that movie was released, there'd be a lot of requests to, for me to speak in public because my character is quite a major character in the movie. And I had no confidence whatsoever of public speaking. Um, And so I went off asking people about public speaking and nobody could give me any advice, except for the only advice that there is to give, which is simultaneously the most useless advice in the universe, which is just be yourself. Oh no. But of course, (laughs) if you're seeking advice on public speaking, it's a certainty that you're someone who lacks 
confidence yes. in public speaking. So when you get told to just be yourself, you go home and you start looking in cupboards under the carpet for yourself. <laughs> you know, like maybe he's, maybe he's under that rug there. I'll have a look. Hello? Hello, it's Mike. Where are you? And then I realise, yeah. actually, it's true. Just be yourself. Yeah. And, you know, it sounds like there's a bit of humility there, but there's also an outrageously big ego yeah. because... Secretly, I wanted to be better than Nelson Mandela. <laughs> and that's, that's the thing that holds you back, really, sure. because because that lack of self-confidence is actually because you want to be so yeah. bloody good. Also, don't do the accent. <laughs> don't do the accent. <laughs> People won't like it. <laughs> um, so you have to find a happy medium. Yeah. And I think being myself is better than being better than Nelson Mandela. Sure. I'd never yeah. be better than Nelson <laughs> <No>. Mandela. <laughs> The, the one piece of advice I always never understood um, with public speaking, for example, if you have, have to do a presentation, is to imagine the audience naked. But for me, that's like, I'm just going to be horny the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's not going to help. <laughs> and uh, it'd be very difficult to keep focused on whatever it is it you want to be Especially if there's someone really hot in the front row. Yeah. That's not helpful well, we at all. It could go horribly wrong. It would. <laughs> no, no, that's really... That's somebody who didn't like you, gave yeah. you that advice. Yeah. Well, maybe a boss from the early noughties. Yeah, that's yeah, a well, kind, boss, of, yeah. kind of advice bosses yeah, would give bosses, in the early noughties. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, Before me too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So, you've been speaking a green man then, but we're outside the human library. Yeah, yeah, what Please an amazing concept. Please explain what this is. Right, well, I'd never heard of it before, but instead of uh, reading a book one becomes a book so I have been a book and they've actually made a special little bookshelves so I sit in a bookshelf being a book and people oh, wow. come up to me and I had no idea what this was going to be like so people can ask you anything 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 whatsoever yeah 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 and yeah. again you just you're, you're just being yourself yeah 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 and of course it, it also involves them yeah so I've been learning as much from other people I've just learned one person just came up to me now and, and said she was brought up doing homeschooling right and I don't think I've ever met anybody who's actually told me that they were homeschooled no. and it was fascinating learning Oh, what that was about. So you're learning from other people as well. It's Absolutely. a two-way thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, so what are yeah. the main things people want to learn from well, you Well, uh, obviously, uh, I'm here because of Lesbians Against yeah. the Miners and because of the movie. So people are either wanting to talk about the miners' strike and, and that or LGBT stuff back then uh, or about the movie itself, yeah. So that that's kind of what we've been talking about. And, of course... There's as much to talk about the movie as the movie itself. You could write a movie about the making of the yeah, movie. Yeah, of course. Uh, it was yeah. fascinating. I mean, I met actors, I went on sets. Wow. Like, being a gardener, I, I, I was so far removed from the movie industry <laughs> and all that experience. And, and now, you know, I, I could run a movie company. I'm that good. <laughs> did, did you get any say in who would play you? No. Oh, no? no? None whatsoever. Oh. And it's always slightly concerned me that Joe Gilgan, the only parts I'd ever seen him playing <laughs> as madmen and lunatics. <laughs> so I'm not really sure what that was about. <laughs> I mean, a question people ask me, and a question I would ask as well of people is, Mike, do you think Joe Gilgan played you well? But it's, you know, it's really odd, not until you put in that position, that actually it's really hard to say because when you think about it you'd be a very weird person if you went round constantly 
appraising how other people were you know you'd be so self-absorbed so i haven't a clue whether he portrays me well but i asked my friends and family they all went oh yes oh really a, yeah yeah oh great mannerisms and things like that oh wow and maybe i'm as mad as a box of frogs sure. as well who knows i mean sure. i don't care i liked you I, yeah <laughs> so right. this movement that you you started then how how does that exist today Oh, it didn't. I mean, the, 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 sadly, the miners were beaten. Well, uh, as a as the descendant of miners, I it, it's a cause very close to my. Well, life. exactly, exactly. And here we are in Wales. Yes. Yeah, yeah. In fact, we're on the, the we're actually on the coal field. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, LGSM wound up about six months after the end of miners' strike, and everybody went the different ways. I mean. Um, when you've been involved in a campaign like that, that that's so passionate though, the friends you make at that time remain absolutely yeah. lifelong friends. Sure. But even so, you know, it, uh, decades went by and we all went our different ways. But then I'm sure it was such a big seminal movement that it must have bled into other things that still exist today, or even if it's just in people's minds and attitudes. Well, it, uh, I mean, it, it, it did, of course, because the, the famously the 1985 Labour Party and TUC conferences, for the first time ever due to the input that we'd had with the, with the miners' strike, uh, LGBT rights were taken on board as trade union and, and Labour Party matters of concern. And as a result of that, long before we had uh, legislation uh, that gave us our rights, the trade union movement was enacting that by kind of coming to agreements with employers, for example, because prior to that, People could be sacked for being gay, just for being gay. I mean, and you had no recourse whatsoever to fight them. It seems incredible now, doesn't it, that that was in our lifetime. I know, it's, it's mad. It is. <laughs> it's completely <laughs> mad. Is yeah. it n- not on the same level, but I always think about it with, you know, the fact that people used to smoke on planes. Yes, yeah, no, <laughs> like it is We lived similar. through that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. similarly, but also worse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And just the fact, and I... Yeah. Do you, do you find a lot of reassurance and comfort in the world that we live in now? Oh, yes. I mean, it's not perfect, obviously, but, yeah. you know. I, I mean, whilst politically it's it's worse now than it was even back in the days of the miners' strike, in terms of politics at the top, as it were, with politicians and parliaments and the world and blah, 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 blah. But also, counter to that, the, the, the younger generation now are just so switched on, so very different to what we were, uh, so so aware, say, in a country like Britain, they're so aware of Britain's appalling colonial past uh, and, and the wrongs that this nation has inflicted on the rest of the world. And, and that younger generation are aware of that and they want to fight it. Um, and in doing that, they do it openly embracing Otherness, so the, the LGBT community is involved. The black and brown faces are involved in in, in 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 it, and so there isn't the kind of sexism, the homophobia, and the racism that used to be within our movements. And thank God for that. And I mean, the LGBT generation have, have taken our baton and <laughs> they've run with it so fast and far <laughs> that I can't see them anymore. I don't know what they're talking about. Do you know what I mean? But I know it's good. Yeah, I yeah, like yeah. it. Um, for example, kind of gender fluid and trans and so forth. There's less of that 
uh, teenage generation talking about lesbian or gay, you know, though that's starting to crumble away now, and it's being replaced by something else. And that's wonderful. That that that's history in the making. You know, uh, one must never forget the history that that we came from. But in doing that, you forge a path forwards to make new terms of reference. Well, yeah, because none of this would be possible without that. Absolutely. And, you know, yeah. It was the same for us in our day. You yeah. know, I mean, uh, uh, there's a, a wonderful man who is long dead now called Alan Horsfall, who was lived in a mining community in Lancashire where I grew up in the 1950s, was fighting for lesbian and gay rights in a mining community, working class man. Hannon Horsfall, absolutely wonderful, and it, I owe him a debt for, for, for doing that in, in the past. Yeah, and let me just say, you asked about um, what happened to LGSM. Fortunately, during the, the the day, I kept all the material that we had and created an archive, which I deposited in the People's History Museum only a year or two after the end of the miners' strike. But sadly, as the years have progressed, you know, people have died both in our community and in the Welsh mining community we supported. Mm-hmm. And I seriously was thinking that I'm going to go to my deathbed without this archive ever being discovered because it's a bit chicken and egg. Why would somebody go looking for an archive that they don't know anything about? And I really was, we were resigned to that. Yeah, I just imagine some undergraduate one day might blow some cobwebs off a folder and go, wow, look at this. So thank God Stephen Beresford came along, as, and it's, it's Pride the movie is him, right, yeah. uh, absolutely. Uh, he came along and, and corrected that, oh, yeah, wow. and made a movie about us. And like I say, it's just it's around the world now. It's yeah, of course. Fantastic. And as an archive, what an archive! Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. What an archive! <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. Oh, do you know what? It feels like I've taken a book out of Human Library, and I've <laughs> I've learned so much. But genuinely, now, right? Well, let's go back to horticulture quickly. Okay. Then. In your garden at the moment, what's doing really well, veg-wise? Have you got veg in your garden? No, my garden's really shady, so I haven't oh, got any veg. No, oh, no, that's a shame. No, you could do potatoes. No. My, my, oh wait, I live in King's Cross in central London. My right. garden's small. Okay. I'm sorry. The, veg- <laughs> the vegetables come from the supermarket, not the garden. Just completely I, ruined I, the illusion. I, 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 I want <laughs> beauty, not not practicality. Yeah. If I win the lottery, I'll get a garden sure. with a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm always really impressed by people who garden in cities, though, because I watch gardeners. Qu- um, Gardener's world all the time, and whenever they go to someone's city garden and it's tiny, and they've managed to create this amazing space from yeah, it, yeah. I just think that's that's even more impressive than like a yeah, country yeah. garden. Yeah. You know, I love it. Oh, can I just? <laughs> yeah, tell you, of course. Uh, of all the different things I get invited to speak at, I love going into schools. I've spoken about fifteen schools yeah. now, and I got invited to speak in a state school in South London in Croydon. And as I was going into Hull, where the movie was already rolling, uh, and we were coming in from the bike, I could see some of these kids were tiny. So I just said to the teacher, you do realise this film's got a 15 certificate? And she looked at me and she smiled and she said, yep, and we've got the written permission of all the, of the, from the parents of all the wow. kids under 15. Ah, it gets better. <laughs> I get to the front, turn round and look, now this is a an LGBT group that the school themselves have encouraged the children to set up. Okay. Yeah. There's about forty of them. 
majority of them were Islam kids, yeah? Yeah. And the majority of them were girls wearing hijabs. Wow. And I just thought, this is wonderful. This is yeah. like putting a bomb into <laughs> both homophobia and Islamophobia at the yeah, same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because all that nonsense about... Uh, Muslims are anti-gay yeah. it's just blown out the water yeah, yeah. these parents have given written permission for the <laughs> children to be exposed to an LGBT movie and I just thought this is wonderful that's amazing And this that actually gave me shivers when you were talking yeah, about yeah. it and uh, when it came to the Q&A this little boy god he was tiny I would say he was about 14 and he just said really casual he just said Mike where do you think LGBT will be in 30 years from now? And I said, my God, that's a good question. And I really had to think on my feet. <laughs> you know. And I just said, do you know what? I hope we don't have LGBT in 30 years' time. I hope we don't have men and women and black and brown and white and all that nonsense. I hope the human race has put all that nonsense behind us and we just, just live as one people, one loving human race. And I looked at the lad and I just said, is that all right? And he went, yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm so relieved. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. No, that's, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and also thank you for spending your time with me because I'm, I'm sure you're being pulled <laughs> from every direction because you're such an interesting man and it's been so wonderful talking to you. Thank and I you. hope you have a lovely rest of the festival. Thank you. Hello, you're listening to the Green Man Podcast. I'm Carl Boss, backstage here at Green Man Festival with director of Getting It Back, the story of Samanda, Tim McKenzie-Smith. How are you doing, sir? I'm very good, very good. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad. We're here to talk today about this wonderful film you're screening up in the cinema tent very soon, doing a little Q&A. This is all about one band, and it's loads of different stories told told within you know the one story this group of people these lost albums i mean just to start with for the people not in the loop who are samande well samande are a british band black british band who um made three killer albums in the 70s um but were very little known over here they they came over all of them as kids um they were kind of just post Windrush, kind of late 50s, early 60s, um, with their families to build a better life in the UK. Um, and found at all times all sorts of obstacles, prejudice, it, you know, from school onwards, every institution you could imagine. And they, they found each other and, and through their love of, of music and different types of music, they created their own sound, very unique sound, which took in kind of a sort of West Indian Calypso influences, rock influences, soul, jazz, all sorts. Um, and they released three albums that actually did really well in the States. Um, they were released, um, they, they got into the top 20 over there. They toured with Al Green. They, they were the first British band to play the Apollo in Harlem. But every time they came home, they couldn't, they could barely get a gig. Um, they could never get on TV, never got on the radio. Um, and you know, after touring, playing to 50, 60, 70,000 people um, a night, you know, coming home, can't get a gig in a pub. It got very, they got very disillusioned. They decided to take a break. But the break took 40 years, much longer than they thought it would. And um, in the meantime, uh, hip hop happened, disco happened, house music happened, sampling happened, crate digging happened, 
uh, and within all of these kind of different new generations of, of kind of new music and new way music was used and imbibed and shared Samando were always there and people didn't always know that who they were but those breaks those bass lines those beats they, they were all over all of those things you know so they, they've got a real hidden influence in music over the last 50 years that you know I think more and more people are starting to understand and that's what the film's about we're trying to help people understand you know I mean you touched there on the, the West Indian connections. I mean, most of the band came over in the Windrush generation, right? Yeah. And there are constant kind of parallels f between their career and kind of Black Britons throughout the film, which is wonderful kind of, it's mostly stock footage, right? This, this isn't kind of found old um, home video shots from the band or anything. No, no, it is because one of the biggest issues we had was um, that there is no footage of the band. Mm. Well, there's one performance piece that the band did which um, was then miming to a, a couple of tracks with only half the band on stage um, luckily it was it was the kind of core members so we were able to use it but no there's no there's no footage of the band they were on three TV shows one in the UK one in uh, the Netherlands and one in the States and all of that footage had been lost so we had to you know, because the story, the context of the story is really important. The context is that, that they were up against all sorts of obstacles in life and in music that was relevant not just to them, but to, to you know, their peers who weren't musicians, just people living their lives, you know. So we used the archive footage to contextualise what they were going through, you know. And you touched on in your first answer, you're talking about the importance their music has had within house music, within, within hip hop. To explain, uh, this is also, of course, hip hop's 50th birthday year. So there's there's a lot of talk around yeah. this in the early days at the moment. Why would a song like Bra be so important? One of their one of their biggest hits be so important to that community? Well, Jazzy J called it um, one of the sacred crates of hip hop, and it actually was brought over from the discos that were going on in Manhattan at the time. So it actually started out as a disco. Like well, Before disco became disco, it was just a, an incredible club scene that was going on in Manhattan. Um, and one of the big tunes there was, was Bra. And a lot of the guys who, who started out in hip hop, like Cool Herc and Red Alert and Jazzy J and, and Van Barter and all these guys, they, they heard a lot of breaks that they wanted to use in, in the discos. So it became one of one of the big, big tracks because you could make it last forever because that breakdown that happens, and I'm going to nerd out here and say it happens at like, I think, two minutes 53 in. <laughs> Which bar? <laughs> oh, man, no, don't, give that. That. Yeah, don't give me that far. You, you, right. you, you're shaming me now. Um, but that, um, that break that lasts for a long time, it's not like a, nor a kind of standard open break that lasts for like seven seconds. It's something that the, the DJs were looping for, I mean, Jazzy J said, you know, we make that song last like 10, 15 minutes on its own. Mm. Um, and so it became a, a, a track that all the DJs were using and everyone was connecting to. But, but no one realised they were British. Everyone thought they were from the States. You know, a lot of the people I spoke to were like, what, they're from Britain? Mm. I thought they were from New York, you know. So it was, it, was, it was a quiet, secret kind of thing. You know, it was, it was the music that did it. It wasn't anyone going, oh, I know them, they're from Britain. It was just the power of the music that kind of kept it alive. You mentioned a couple of the amazing contributors you've got. I mean, like DJ Hollywood. Like that's a really oh, man, old he's school a legend. guy. <laughs> one of the one of the first one of the you know 
he was he was there right in the early years he hasn't quite had the you know the press over the years let's say because he kept working in the clubs rather than recording the music but like it was amazing to hear him and like the huge cast of people you've got i mean how long did you take tracking these guys down long time long time i started making this uh in 2017 and for various reasons it took this long but one of the reasons was that you had to take your time to try and find the right people and to contact them and and, mm. and try and get diaries and schedules aligned so that so that we can make it happen you know i mean dj hollywood was was just unreal he was so funny and he he <laughs> one thing is not in the film but hopefully will be in the dvd extras was he basically just he's done his own version of bra his own remix of bra that was on his phone and he just did a it did he rapped over it for the camera and it was just like so cool because he is actually you know you could argue that he's one of the first ever rappers because of the way he was rapping over over tunes in those Harlem clubs in like 1972 1973 yeah i mean if we uh Without, without trying to throw any shade on the Sugar Hill Gang and Co, they were mostly recycling raps that these guys were doing in the clubs at the time, over these beats by yeah, artists 100%, like Samantha. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because like there, Master Kaz and people like that, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean like the I mean, you did very, very well to track all these people down. Um, I mean there, there are a couple of people in there. Where I was like, I, I can tell this has been taking a while because like, I can see that some of the DJs have aged, for instance, <laughs> <laughs> from yeah. the interviews until yeah. now. I would say who, but um. Uh, it's yeah, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. It was a long time ago. But you know, I imagine, some of those were five years ago. Those yeah. interviews. I mean, I, I imagine though, the reason you kind of got this amount of talent is because this music has an incredible connection to them, and so they're probably begging for a chance to talk about it. Yeah, you know, I, I come from my my original kind of genre of documentaries was sport, and and you know, people only talked to you but in sport documents if you gave loads of money you know because they're like yeah I've told the story loads of times before I don't want to just trot the same old stuff out whatever but this was like people you contact them and they're like yep in you know I would say it's often the same with music though like the old like old American guys that's true that's true because fees. the pioneers didn't make didn't make any of the money that everyone else then then jumped on and got all the money off the back of their hard work so mm. yeah a hundred percent you know and they were within their rights to us for for a lot of money but these guys were immediately like i really want to talk about this band because i've got a personal connection i think that was the key with the interviewees was like it's and anyone who was had any connection with the film i think you know from me because I found them on a mixtape in 1993 um, to, to DJs that played played like block parties in the 70s to people that found them in a record shop in 1999. It was because they had that personal connection to the music that they, they wanted to, to be part of it. And and those kind of personal stories were things that we wanted to kind of mine. It's almost like there's a kind of oral history of people finding this music and having the same feeling of like, oh my God, how have I not heard this before? Where's it, where did it come from, you know? But it's a lot of the times where in the kind of the, the digger, kind of rare groovy scene, um, it was interesting hearing Norman Jay kind of mention his, you know, putting in his like his big stake in that as well. Um, but oftentimes it is, it's one album, it's a private press that has just sunk but it's maybe, is it more tragic that these guys did have a level of success and could never get recognized at home? And that's possibly why it's a more poignant story to tell. 
Possibly, but you know, Norman Norman said something really cool that that sort of towards the end of the film, which was, in a way, what happened to them. It happened the best way because they thought it was all gone. They thought it was all over, and then they realised that there was a whole world that they didn't know about, where their music was part of it, front and centre. And now, off the back of all of that, you know, in their 70s, some actually, I think, um, I think Bammy uh, is now in his 80s. You know, mm. they're they're still playing. They're playing to kids who are, you know, I went to their first gig back in Coco in 20. 14, 15, and I was the oldest person there. <laughs> it's not like loads of people who had the T-shirt that they bought in 1971, like, you know, roadies or something. It was youngsters who found them on Spotify and YouTube. So they've got this whole new young generation of fans that is, is making their music more relevant than it could ever, ever have been had they had that success in the 70s. They wouldn't be relevant now, if you see what I mean. It's because they they didn't have that success and that platform that I think it became this kind of sacred crate or the kind of the secret music that you share or that thing that you put on at three in the morning when you're having a house party that kind of kept it fresh. But Lord Carner said that, you know, because he got into it through the samples, so he knew the Fugees and then he knew Samande. So to him, Samande is the newer music. Do you know what I'm saying? So that's that's I think a reason why it is a tragedy that it didn't happen when it should have happened. But in a weird way, it's made the story more interesting and more powerful that they they were able to capture that moment again. You know, at a much later stage in life where you know normally you'd be in retirement or whatever. They're touring the world and hanging out with with people who want to get their records signed. They're loving it. <laughs> And as a documentarian coming in, were they very receptive to telling their story? Were they very, very keen to take part in this? Yeah, I mean, it was, it's funny because I, the reason it happened was I did a documentary on, you know, Anthony Joshua, the boxer, and um, for the BBC, and I used Dove as, as the opening track. And um, I happened to be kind of, kind of disillusioned with the whole sport genre anyway because it wasn't really floating my boat like your music was my first love music and film and and, and as it happened when that when that went out Samantha's manager at the time kind of tweeted me about it and said the band had seen it and um and so I was having these conversations about I need to do something different so so we decided oh let's contact them and see if they're up for it you know so I had a meeting with Stephen Patrick who are the kind of the, the 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 writers of most of the songs and the guys that really founded the band and um the, the what you really are looking for when you when you're kind of meeting people not obviously they want to know that I'm legit and I you know I'm someone who can kind of curate their story for them in the right way uh, but also I'm looking looking at it from the point of view of, you know, are these guys going to be able to character-wise carry a film? Because it's, you know, you, the film's about its characters, ultimately. And I met these two and they just, they blew me away. And, and I, because they were so funny, passionate, so clever. And I learned so much of them just on that initial meeting. And then we got on really well. And, and hopefully they believe that, that I was, you know, the right person to tell the story because it's it's up to them to decide who has the right to do that on their behalf you know um, and, I, and I didn't take that lightly um, and and you know ever since then now I consider them it's really weird because they're like you know my favorite band 
and now I consider them like you know friends, you know, in a in a weird way. And uh, but also people I've learned so much from, you know, so much from about life and about how to live it. You know, they're amazing people. I mean, you, you can see that there's particularly Pablo. Oh, Pablo, Pablo, oh, Pablo, Pablo, one so of much. the is. It's established near the beginning of the film, and you kind of well giving too much away. You can you get these very intimate moments of their day to day lives, and you you can only ever do that if you have a warm relationship with them. Yeah. Um, but you know, endless pearls of wisdom thrown out amidst all the music talk, and you know, it's it's a very you know compelling watch. So I'm I'm glad that it was a lovely thing to make as well. It was, and Pablo genuinely, I, I not 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 many people I've ever met in my entire life have had an impact on me in the same way that Pablo did. And I hope that comes across in the film because he's my hero. <laughs> I love loved that man so much. I actually had the, the fortune of seeing these guys play at another festival just last weekend. I mean, how regularly are they still touring? I mean, I know these a lot, a lot of the players are, you know, deep into their 70s and, and 80s now. I mean, but how regularly are these guys getting out? They're getting out. Um, quite regularly and it's ramping up because obviously we're releasing the film next year and they're going to be touring off the back of it as well uh, and so a lot of their kind of touring plans have been uh, not on hold but but kind of playing the waiting game until they can really go for it off the back of the film so the film's going to come out in the UK and then globally um, in kind of first quarter of next year and off the back of that the band are going to be touring Europe in I think April and then I expect they'll be heading over to the States as well. So they're giving it one more really good run, like go around next year. Um, but they do have, you know, Steve and Patrick are, are still lawyers. Um, <laughs> there are other jobs. So they're, you know, but really like quite heavy duty lawyers in the Caribbean. Um, so, so they have to kind of manage that side of things as well. This is another, another, another wonderful element to the story is that they do all kind of go separate ways some are being you know have e had excellent professional careers yeah. for a very long time others have ended up playing in loads of british bands from aswad to to jules holland's orchestra for donkeys and it's just yeah wonderful seeing that human story told throughout it as well yeah yeah well it's an amazing thing they're, they're amazing guys man you know changed my life doing it so we'll be enjoying it here today at green man are there any plans for a theatrical release of this Yes, theatrical is happening. Finally, the film's going to be distributed by the, by the BFI. Um, early 2024, it's going to be hitting cinemas on Blu-rays and streaming. Um, partner up with the BFI, which we're really chuffed about because the band was ignored and kind of marginalised by institutes of, institutions of British life in the 70s. And now here we are, the actual literal British Film Institute is distributing their film and it feels like real validation for them and everything they've done and all their music and everything they've achieved so we're really chuffed with that so yeah early next year it's going to be out at cinemas finally it's been a brilliant festival run but now we're ready to get it out properly it struck me there's there's one very good bit in it where you've got cut chemist so legendary for j5 Jurassic five like early 90s kind of hip-hop don and he talks at length about the process of kind of finding out about the band and showing the records and so many of these people throughout it have just been evangelists for the band they've been trying to be like well, you've, you know you've heard that sample here you know it's this is where it's from and just trying to really build the profile of this music and get it out to the audience and get people knowing the band and 
and making connections, lifelong collections, connections over it. And it strikes me that this, this is basically what you're doing. This is the same thing, right? By making this documentary, you're trying to do the same thing in your own way. 100%. It's just, it's just, and it's not anything different to what I, I was doing when we used to have parties in our conservatory in, in our shared house in the, in the noughties where I'd be putting it on, telling people about it and going, have you heard this? And they're like, no. And I'm like, well, check it out. And, they, and it blew their mind. And this is, I'm doing that on the, on the same, just on a, a larger, more expensive scale. <laughs> you know, it's about, I want people to know about them, you know, because the connection I have had with every single playlist I ever make, I always start with bra. Whatever the playlist is, it could be like death metal and put bra at the top. Have done ever since I found it on a on a, a mixtape in the in the in nineteen ninety three. Didn't know it was them for a couple of years, um, but yeah, that they they've always been my the the band that I want to tell people about because it's like why doesn't the world know about them? The world should know about them because the music's amazing. So that 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 was what it was all about. Okay, we'll go relive your house parties now off to the cinema tent and tell people all about it, man. Thank you so much for talking to me. No, my pleasure.